there are just 165 days left to shop until Christmas. Some of you, the really organized among us, already knew that. And you have been steadily making your way down the list of people that you intend to buy gifts for since the 1st of January. Others among us will get to it in the fall. And then those of you who are like me will wait until there is one shopping day left until Christmas to procure those gifts which you intend to give. Christmas has become the predominant holiday on our calendar. It stands above all the others. Bulwark marking each year. There are all kinds of fun activities that go on at Christmas time. We, we travel long distances to visit family, share you know, cookies and apple cider and, and hot cocoa. We gather together to, to rejoice and to give thanks for the year that was and look forward to the year that is about to come. We exchange gifts as an expression of our gratitude for what God has given to us and as an expression of our love for one another. We put trees in our house. How silly that sounds. Trees. Like I'm allergic to those things. Trees in our homes and, and, and lights, all in anticipation of this, this one day, this one festival, wherein we will celebrate the birth of Christ and participate in that tradition of, of giving gifts. I do love some of the, we sing these wonderful hymns around Christmas time. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And we sing silly songs too, right, together with our children. Grandma got ran over by a reindeer. Walking home from our house Christmas Eve. It's, it's a time that is filled with both sincerity and rejoicing. With song and laughter and conversation and fellowship. And it's not so different from some of these celebratory days, these holy days we have outlined for us in Leviticus 23. We've been in Leviticus 23 for a few weeks now, and we have been reminded over and over again that God has organized the calendar of his people so that they will remember him, that they will be reminded of his faithfulness over and over and over. And so today we come to the Feast of the Harvest, also called the Feast of Weeks or Perhaps you better know it as the Feast of Pentecost. It's the post-exilic name for it. And the main idea of this particular feast, what, what I think we are to learn from it, is that God's people are to joyfully celebrate God's good gifts. So the exhortation is to remember, rejoice, and give thanks. Our outline will follow the paradigm that we have worked through the past few weeks, and so you should be familiar with this pattern by now. Uh, we will pray 
and then we will get into the text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning in celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. As we rejoice in our salvation, he has saved us out of death and into life. We praise you that through the work of Christ, you have reconciled us to yourself. We give thanks for this. We pray that you would fill our hearts with thankfulness as we hear your word proclaimed this morning. We ask that you would send your spirit to apply it to our hearts and to shape us just a little bit more into the image of Christ. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Look with me at verse 15 of Leviticus chapter 23. You are to count seven complete weeks starting from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the presentation offering. You are to count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Bring two loaves of bread from your settlements as a presentation offering each of them made from four quarts of fine flour baked with yeast as first fruits to the Lord. You are to present with the bread seven unblemished male lambs, a year old, one young bull, and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You are also to prepare one male goat as a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old, as a fellowship sacrifice, the priest will present the lambs with the bread of first fruits as a presentation offering before the Lord. The bread and the two lambs will be holy to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to make a proclamation and hold a sacred assembly. You are not to do any daily work. This is to be a permanent statute wherever you live throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. And so this feast picks up from where we left off last week when we considered the feast of the first fruits, which was quite literally they took the first fruit in the land, which would have been barley, and they took it to the priest as their first and their best, and they offered it to God as an expression of their dedication to God and their dependence on God to give second fruits, third fruits, fourth fruits, and more first fruits when it came around for new harvests to come. And this festival in many ways is the completion of that first festival. Right? The, the offering of the first fruits is, is in some ways like a down payment. And then the feast of the harvest is the people kind of receiving that payment. They say, God, you said that you would bring us into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a land that is agriculturally prosperous. And we take these first fruits and we give them to you because you are our king, our Lord, our God, our provider. All of it belongs to you. And because we trust you to give us the rest of the harvest, to make the rest of our crops prosperous. 
And so they give it, and now they're, they're, they're saying at the Feast of the Harvest, God, you have provided the harvest. You have kept your word. You've been good to it. And so you can see that the Feast of the Harvest is kind of this completion of the Feast of the first fruits, and the first thing that is given at this particular celebration is a sheaf, once more, probably wheat, just like the barley. I'm sorry, it's the, the loaves of bread is the first thing with a new grain. But it comes after they count seven Sabbaths or 50 days from uh, that feast of first fruits, and they bring this bread, which I think is, is wonderful. But one of the things that is interesting about the bread that they bring is that it has got leaven in it. If you remember, leaven isn't offered on the altar. And so uh, what the priest does when they bring these leavened loaves, that's like normal bread, if you think about it for me and you, the priest waves this or, or lifts it up, elevates it, presents it to God. And then that goes into the food stores of the priest, and uh, the priest and his family are allowed to eat that particular bread. Uh, it's a glorious gift. I think this is one of the best offerings there were. I kind of go, if I were a priest back in the day, you all could bring me delicious bread and, and I would get to eat it. It would be great. But you go, why, why do they offer bread to God? Bread that, that can't be burnt on the altar, that, that the priests are going to eat? It doesn't, it's a little discontinuous with the rest of what we've seen. Then the answer is this, one commentator says, both of these loaves were to be made with yeast, like the Israelites' normal fare in order to form an expression of thanksgiving for daily bread. And so in bringing their regular bread that they would normally eat, it is as if the Israelites are saying, God, thank you for providing to us bread each day. Thank you for providing for our needs through the land. Very similar, it just brings me in my mind back to when God literally would just throw manna on the ground every morning and they would collect it. He provided for their needs every day, every day, every day. And then once they take the promised land, there's this uh, neat little portion of Joshua that tells us they didn't eat manna anymore. They started eating the fruit of the ground. And th this is what they've continued to do. God did not stop providing for his people when the manna stopped. He's continued to provide for them each and every day that they lived in the promised land. And they're saying, thank you for giving to us our daily bread. Now, the next thing we see here is that they are to make a burnt offering that's composed of seven lambs, a bull, and two rams. That is quite the offering. We see that it will be offered in concert together with its requisite drink offerings and grain offerings. And then also they are to prepare one male goat as a sin or a purification offering and two male lambs as a fellowship offering sacrifice. There are a lot of offerings going on here, and we're familiar with all of them because we have been studying the book of Leviticus. And we know that this, all of these things together, are extremely costly. In fact, if each family in Israel had to offer these lists, this list of sacrifices, it would probably bankrupt them. Consequently, most scholars believe that these gifts would be offered corporately on behalf of all of the Israelites. And at the same time, individual families would also bring additional fellowship sacrifices so that they could have some meat as they ate and rejoiced before the Lord. It is interesting that 
all of these sacrifices going on, they accomplish so much. There's a full range of things that are happening. Right? The, the burnt offering and the purification offering teach us about the people. They are, they are making atonement for their sins. Their sins are, are being purified, cleansed. Burnt offering also expresses devotion and, and worship. You have the fellowship offering. The people are celebrating the fact that uh, through the blood sacrifices that have been offered, they are in relationship with God. God has made a way for his unholy people to be made holy so that they might live in his holy presence. He's done it through this sacrificial system and they are there to, to celebrate their reconciliation with God and their enjoyment of the blessings that have come from God's hand. This feast is full of rejoicing. They are not to do their normal daily work. They're they're to rest. This has been characteristic of most of the days we see in this chapter. They're to rest. They are to gather together. And they are to, to worship the Lord. They are to remember what God has done. And we have this verse 22 and it seems like tacked on in some ways, but, it, but it's not at all. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. And this is a repeat of a law we had back in chapter 19. And it's put here because God wants to make sure that everyone in Israel is participating in this festival and rejoicing before him. No one is to have an excuse to not be happy before the Lord. Everyone is to be included. This festival is to be a time of remembering, rejoicing, giving, and thanksgiving. And to to see some of these characteristics, some of the purposes of this festival, we should look at some of its sister texts, which tell us just a little bit more about it. First, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 12. Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. You were to count seven weeks, counting the weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. You are to celebrate the festival of weeks, remember that same festival, festival of harvest, festival of weeks, Pentecost, all the same thing. The festival of weeks to the Lord your God with a free will offering that you give in proportion to how the Lord your God has blessed you. Rejoice before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to have his name dwell. You, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the Levite within your city gates, as well as the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow among you, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Carefully follow these statutes. And then we're told a little bit more, and we read this last week again, but repetition is the mother of learning. Deuteronomy 26 speaks of this festival, gives instructions, saying, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you take possession of it and live in it, take some of the first fruits of all the land's produce that you harvested from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket. Then go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to have his name dwell. When you come before the priest who is serving at that time, say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have entered the land the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest will take the basket from you and place it before the altar of the Lord your God. 
you were to respond by saying in the presence of the Lord your God. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with a few people and resided there as an alien. There he became a great, powerful, and populous nation. But the Egyptians mistreated and oppressed us, forced us to do hard labor. So we called out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our cry and saw our misery, hardship, and depression. Then the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with terrifying power and with signs and wonders. He led us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I have now brought the first of the land's produce to you, Lord, the land that you have given me. You will then place the container before the Lord your God and bow down to him. You, the Levites, and the resident aliens among you will rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. And so you can see uh, there are two kind of primary characteristics at this festival. They are remembering what God has done, bringing the people out of Egypt. They are to remember their salvation and rejoicing. They are to rejoice before the Lord their God. The festival is to be a time of remembering, rejoicing, giving, and thanksgiving. The people are to joyfully celebrate God's good gifts. This festival is to center their hearts and their minds back on the Lord their God by summoning them to gratitude and to great rejoicing. And so what, what lessons can we learn from this particular festival as 21st century Christians? Well, I'd like to point out three, and all three of these come under that big umbrella of remember the Lord your God, remember your salvation, and rejoice. Those are the rejoice before God and remember what God has done. The first one is that there are appropriate times to celebrate. There are appropriate times to celebrate. I don't think we struggle too much with this in our country. I actually think uh, we, we do the celebrating piece pretty, pretty well. We have things on the calendar, you know, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving variously. Uh, I think we more struggle with those times when we're supposed to not be celebrating, times of, of fasting. Nevertheless, we still want to make sure that we are taking time to celebrate what God has done. And that we're enjoying those occasions which arise for us to celebrate and rejoice before the Lord our God. Think not only of, of holidays on our calendar, but those things that, that crop up throughout the year. You know, birthday parties and shared meals with friends, weddings and baptisms, Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day. Can't impress upon you enough that the Lord's Day... This day is a celebration that we come to each week. Each week, God's people come together to celebrate what God has done. To remember the gospel. To remember that Christ Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. To repent afresh of all the sins we've piled up throughout the week. And to receive once more the grace and mercy of God as he forgives those sins. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I invite you to come to Christ 
turning from your sins and placing your faith in him. If you confess your sins, repenting of them, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There are appropriate times to celebrate. And I wonder, do you, do you take this day for granted? Do you take the preaching of God's word, the praying together with his people, the singing of God's praises, do you take it for granted? Don't. This is an incredible privilege. I wonder, did you miss church? Did you miss our gathering when we were unable to get together during the front end of this pandemic? Did you, did you miss taking the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ? If you did not, something is wrong. And you ought to think deeply about why it is that you would not miss gathering together with God's people or participating in the Lord's Supper. You need to think deeply on that this afternoon. Something is off kilter in your heart and in your life. Second lesson, not only are there appropriate times to celebrate, but as Christians we are to celebrate with others. We're not only to remember what God has done, but we are to remember it together. Notice this is a a corporate festival that the people are, are called to enjoy. And so everyone is to be in on it. And for everybody to be in on this festival, there are two things that have to be taking place, broadly speaking. Uh, One is communication, and the other is is generosity, as you'll see in a second. But but let's talk about communication first. We've said this throughout this chapter, that these would go on the calendar, they would come around every year, and they would turn into traditions, and traditions teach. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Passover, and we, we looked at Passover and God tells us in Exodus, he's like, hey, when your kid asks you why this night is different than any other night, why you are participating in the Passover, tell him, because this is the night. On this night, the Lord my God brought me out of Egypt. He saved me. He, he passed over me when I was owed judgment because I took shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. And so likewise, this festival would also be an occasion for teaching. You say, well, teaching what? What we just read in Deuteronomy 26, that the Lord God made a promise to his people not only to bring them out of Egypt and to make them his sons and daughters, but also to bring them into the land of promise and to flourish them there and to bless them with abundant crops and agriculture. And now, as they hold those crops in their hands, those first fruits and that bread, and they have more than enough and they have wine in their cups, they are holding the promises of God in their hand and they can see God has been faithful. Let us rejoice. And so they would communicate God's faithfulness to one another. If you were, if you were an immigrant or a resident alien in, in Israel, you were to participate in this feast with the people. The people would be telling you about this. 
Yeah, we, we do this feast of the harvest. It comes 50 days after the feast of uh, first fruits, which we've already talked about. And uh, it's, we celebrate to God. And here's why. Because God keeps his promises. And he's made a way for unholy people to have relationship with him when they believe his promises. When they put their faith in his provision. And this would be a great occasion for for teaching. And we have some, some occasions on our calendar for, for teaching others about Christ and the gospel. I mean, quite naturally, we, we think of, of Christmas or of Easter. But those are great times to engage your family or your neighbors or your non-Christian friends with the gospel. I mean, especially Christmas and Easter, these are, these are Christian holidays. They're built around the incarnation of our Lord and the resurrection of our Lord. These are excellent opportunities for you to take to teach others about who God is, who we are apart from Christ, and how Jesus can save us from our sins and make us new. There are also occasions throughout the year. I mean, maybe you catch somebody on the Lord's Day or they ask you how your weekend was, and you can say, it was super fantastic. Do you know what I did this weekend? I went to church I gathered together with God's people on the Lord's Day. And you know, I enjoy that so much, and here's why. Share the gospel. Weddings come up throughout the year, right? What a great opportunity to share about Christ. I know many of us probably don't think as weddings, particularly as an opportunity to share the gospel, but Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a dramatic portrayal, a mysterious and dramatic portrayal of the relationship between Christ and his church. Wherein the bride or the wife plays the role of the church, respecting and submitting to her husband as the church respects and submits to Christ. And the husband plays the role of Christ, sacrificially laying down his life for the good of his wife, as Christ laid down his life for the good of the church. Marriage tells us about who God is and how he's loved us. How he can save all who come to him in faith. We ought to look for creative ways to communicate the good news of the gospel to those who do not know God in our midst. We want everybody in our orb of influence to know this good news so that they might celebrate it together with us. We don't want anybody left out. And that's what this second piece is about, generosity. God does not want anybody that is in or among or around his people to be left out of this festival. You see that in verse 22, we mentioned it once already. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. The people honor the Lord not only by expressing thanksgiving and praise for his provisions, by making offerings to him, but also by sharing that provision with others. 
That sharing of God's provision with others by leaving the edges of their fields unharvested. And by inviting others to share their fellowship meal. It was a testimony that the Lord is a God who loves and cares for the unfortunate, for the fatherless, for the widow, for the immigrant, for the resident alien. God is a big-hearted God. And He calls His people to rejoice and to share in His own happiness. He doesn't want anybody to be with an excuse for not rejoicing before Him. So the generosity of the people not only expresses their devotion to God as they give to others, but it also expresses God's care and love for His people. It broadcasts God's love for the marginalized. It broadcasts God's love for all who would call themselves by His name. Generosity is a byproduct of gratitude. When we are are thankful for what God has given us, and we recognize God as our true provider, we are free to open our hands and give generously to those who have needs around us. We can leave the fields partially unharvested around the edges because we know that God will meet our needs and has desired to meet the needs of others through us. As we said last week, or when it, maybe in Leviticus 19, it all runs together for me. Uh, find ways to not harvest all of your fields. Find ways to not use all your resources on you. Uh, resolve to maybe uh, take a little bit of your time to go and visit someone and bless them because maybe they're alone and what they need is relationship and time with someone else. Take some of your money and just say, this is going to be blessing money. Put it in an envelope. Maybe it's five bucks a month. Just store it on up. Say, I'm going to bless somebody with this. Maybe you do it every month. You just give somebody five bucks. I don't know. Maybe you do it once a year. I'm going to look for ways to give because God has been so generous to me. I want to spread God's generosity to me to others in tangible ways that they can put their fingers on. We have every reason to be generous. Because God has been so generous to us. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God the Son 
stepped out of heaven's palace and out of painlessness, out of timelessness, and into time, and became, he took on flesh, never ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. He became a man. Jesus Christ became killable and entered into our poverty, our suffering, so that we, by faith in his substitutionary work on the cross and in his justifying resurrection, might have life, so that we might inherit the riches that only he deserves. If God has been generous to us like that, if he has been wildly, incredibly, lavishly, irresponsibly, marvelously generous like that, how can we not also be generous to others? How can we, having received the grace and mercy of God, having received all that we have from his hands, look around and say, I'm not sharing with anyone. How can we, it should not be that Christians are seen as a stingy people. It shouldn't be that when you go out to eat, under normal circumstances, uh, when there's not a pandemic, right? When, when you all go out to eat after church and there is a restaurant filled with Christians, it shouldn't be that the employees look around at one another and say, oh no, I don't want to take that table. Sundays are the absolute worst day to work because they, they, don't, they don't tip. They leave, me, they leave me these little tracks about God and how much he loves me and they don't, they don't tip me anything. What a terrible witness that is. We want to we change the story there. We should be the most generous of people. So that those same servers at that same restaurant would be, those are the, the Christians are coming. It's Sunday. This is going to be a good day for me. That's a happy people. Their God has provided for them. They are so generous. I mean, they all might get individual checks, but I don't care. Right, they spent 10 bucks on, on whatever it is they got, but they're going to tip me $10 too. All of them. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out well for me. How can we not be a generous people when we have received so much from the Lord our God? Paul continues this. He's encouraging the Corinthians to give. And he's in 2 Corinthians and he continues that same riff in chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 7 and then skip to verses 11 through 12 before I comment. He says, each person, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Now verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Well, why would you enrich us, God? For all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. This, this verse is incredible. 
God has enriched us. He's given us things uh, so that we can properly steward our gifts. Yes, offering, the de- to the, offering them to him, expressing our worship to him, and also so that we can be generous to others. And did you see what happens when we are generous, when Christians are generous, meeting the needs of the saints, as Paul says? This is the one that really gets me that I think is incredible. It's in probably the second half of verse 11, 2 Corinthians 9. You'll be enriched in every way for all generosity. Here it is. Which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Think about this. God will use your generosity to produce thanksgiving in someone else. Does that blow your mind? That God can use you and your generosity to produce worship in someone else. Your generosity, your kindness to somebody else can cause them to look to God and to say, thank you, and to worship the Lord. that's, That's incredible. Is there a better use of your resources than as a catalyst for thanksgiving to God? I think we would all do well to find creative ways to be more generous with with our time and our, our money and all those things that God has entrusted to us. Take some time this afternoon and think about how you can, in thanksgiving to God, find ways to share God's gifts with others so that they might praise Him. Now, some of us might not have barns that are overflowing right now. Might just be, be getting by or, or maybe, maybe you're here and you're in need. My encouragement for you is sometimes you're in the place of the Corinthians where it's your responsibility to give, 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 give. And I don't want to tell you not to give. There are always ways to give and be generous. But I also want to point out, sometimes you are in the position of the saints in Jerusalem where your job is to receive the gift of the Corinthians. And so if you have a need and you are among us, don't keep that to yourself. Do not rob the body of Christ of the opportunity to help itself. Do not rob us of the opportunity to serve one another to share God's good gifts with one another. God intends to produce thanksgiving throughout the body of Christ by our gratitude to Him and our generosity to one another. It really is is neat when you give to someone or you help them out and weeks later uh, they tell you, God knew that I would need this and you provided it. Or, I did need this. I'd been praying about it, and all of a sudden, here came your gift. Here you came to spend time with me. Here came your phone call, your note. And God met this need I had through you. And therefore, I give him thanks. Let us be a people committed to celebrating with others 
remembering who God is as our provider, and then broadcasting His love and His ability to provide by generously stewarding our resources. Lesson three, give thanks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Be joyful always. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because people always go, well, what is God's will for me? I just want to know what God's will for me. Well, here it is. God's will for you is to be joyful in every circumstance, giving thanks to him always and praying continually. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. We do well to find occasions as the Israelites here, God gives them the occasion to to. Give him thanks. We do well to find occasions to to count our blessings and to name them one by one. So that we might rejoice before the Lord our God and remember all the wonderful things he has done for us. Our salvation chief among them. Another reason this festival exists in the calendar of Israel specifically and it's aimed at eliciting thanksgiving and reminding the people who God is and who they are, is it is a protection. It is a protection against idolatry. You see, one of the temptations of the people of Israel, a temptation that they will give into over and over and over again throughout their time as God's people in the Old Covenant, is the temptation to, to worship idols and false gods. Specifically, Baal is one of them. You've probably heard that one before. And Baal was a Canaanite uh, storm god who the people thought would bring fertility both to the land and to women. And you worshipped Baal through all kinds of illicit sexual practices. Uh, And so it basically allowed the people to, to live life like they wanted to, apart from God's law, and then still be considered righteous. And what the people did, especially uh, during the time that Jeremiah was prophesying, is they would take, they would go and they would worship Baal in these illicit ways, dishonor God, trusting in Baal to give the harvest. And then they would continue to perform the ritual cleansing rites of Leviticus, right? We're following this sacrificial system kind of rotely. We're going through the motions of it and we're living life how we want over here apart from God. And you, you see that one of the protections this festival was to provide was to say, well, you don't need Baal. He's a false God. He's no God. He doesn't provide for you. I provide for you. And yet despite all all of these festivals, all of these reminders throughout the year, the people still found a way to leave the Lord their God. Listen to what Jeremiah says in in chapter 2, verse 8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, 
and went after things that do not profit. So the leaders of Israel have gone after Baal. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. He's bringing charges against his people. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, and send to Keter, and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You know, Jeremiah is saying, The people of the nations are loyal even to their false gods. But here, you are my people. You know me, the real God. And you are unfaithful. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That, that vivid picture there of a spring, that would, they would call it living water. So God is saying, I, I am a spring, I am a fountain of living water. And they have exchanged me for broken cisterns, for false gods. Broken cistern would be the, there are like three ways you could um, collect water in, in the world at this time. One was, the best way was from a spring or living water. Second was from a well, and the third was from a cistern, and cisterns weren't all that great. They collected uh, runoff, and they would get really muddy. And then broken cistern is a, is a whole next level of filth. They would, mosquitoes would breed in there. It's, it's not good water. So you can see God is saying that you have exchanged me, the source of living water, for broken cisterns, for false gods that cannot nourish you, cannot give you life. He continues with his condemnation of the people in verse 22, chapter 2, Jeremiah. Though you wash yourselves with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. They're trying to go through the ritual cleansing process, but they can't get their sin out because they are not truly putting their faith in God. God is not interested in in rote motion. He's not interested in a people who are dedicated to him outwardly, but inwardly despise him. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the balls. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves in their month, for they shall find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. You can see God is is saying, I have provided you with what you need. And they, they picture it this way, put shoes on, feet of Israel. He's given him drink. So Israel is portrayed as God's wife and she is wayward. She is the, the wild donkey or the camel in heat looking for other lovers. Idolatry is portrayed dramatically by metaphorical adultery. Jeremiah 5.7, God says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. 
and have sworn by those who are not gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. You see what, what's being said here, maybe most poignantly. God says, when I provided everything you needed, when I fed you to the full, you abandoned me. I mean, these warnings come throughout Scripture. We see it over and over again. Israel gets fat. They have everything they need. And then they abandon God. And this festival of the harvest would call the people back to God. It would remind them all they have is from Him. And that gratefulness to God would keep their eyes from wandering after false gods. You see, an unthankful heart has its course set on unfaithfulness. See it in the garden, right? Why must Eve have the forbidden fruit? There are many reasons. I think at least one of which is a lack of gratitude for all the other trees that she may eat from. Maybe think of it just in terms of a marriage. If you stop delighting in your spouse, if you stop being grateful for your spouse, you are much more inclined to be unfaithful to your spouse. Thanklessness is tantamount to faithlessness. So God calls us to be a thankful people. It is madness to be ungrateful to God. We see this madness explained by Paul in Romans 1. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you see that in verse 21, the first thing? For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Part of honoring God as God is giving thanks to him. And the second we find ourselves ungrateful to God is the second we find ourselves right up on the precipice of unfaithfulness. You see what happens when we fail to acknowledge God or give thanks to him that we don't stop worshiping. We simply we change the object of our worship. Exchange the glory of God. Worship creeping things. Despite all the reminders that Israel has, they still slip into idolatry. They still go after false gods. And so I wonder, what false gods do you go after? Despite all of God's warnings to you, despite all of God's faithfulness, what false God are you still likely to chase? Where, a good way to try and diagnose this is to find out where you're unthankful in your life. Or what do you complain about? The thing you complain about not having 
usually reveal a lack, of, obviously it will reveal a lack of gratitude to God, but it will also reveal to you a particular direction that your worship has likely been going in. Gratitude or lack of gratitude will help reveal to you what you worship. And the unthankful heart is in danger of unfaithfulness. We want to be a people that are giving thanks, that are rejoicing always, praying continually, because this is God's will for us. Those are the lessons of the festival, and now quickly, we will talk of the purpose of the festival, or the fulfillment of the festival. And if you've been with us, you can probably anticipate that this festival too is fulfilled in the life of Christ. Passover was fulfilled in Jesus' life as he died as the perfect sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Feast of first fruits was fulfilled in Christ as he rose on the day that was the feast of first fruits on that first Sunday, that first Lord's Day. And now we see the feast of harvest shows up as Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to gather not a harvest of physical fruits, but a harvest of souls at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember, the Spirit comes down, Peter preaches, and a harvest is gathered. Acts 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. There was a harvest of souls, and this is a harvest that Jesus began in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost by means of the Holy Spirit. And it's a harvest that has continued down through the first century into the second century, into the third century, and now all the way into our century. It's a harvest that is still going on. Jesus is still calling a people to himself. God is going to gather his people to himself. Praise God, we are part of that people. And so we give him thanks and we do our best to participate in that ingathering by preaching the gospel to all those who do not yet know Christ. Indeed, the harvest is plentiful and yet the workers are few. Let us be a people dedicated to celebrating joyfully God's good gifts and sharing those good gifts with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving wretches like us. Everything we have is from your hand. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, the, the Father of lights. 
we give you thanks and praise. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. He is our salvation. Thank you for his blood which was shed on our behalf. Thank you that he defeated death and rose again. We thank you that like him, we too shall rise. You are God who has not only provided for our, our daily needs, our daily bread, but a God who is determined to raise us from the dead into everlasting life by meeting our deep need of reconciliation with you. We thank you for, for all these wonderful things. We, we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.